there. Welcome to the Soil and Roots podcast, cultivating deep discipleship in community. I'm Brian Fisher. This is episode 60, Secret Invasion. Welcome to season four, which is all about the kingdom, or perhaps more directly, the forgotten kingdom. If you've been listening to Soil and Roots for any length of time, you know I normally do a quick review of the primary themes and ideas we're exploring. I sort of eat, sleep, and breathe soil and roots, but unlike me, you actually have a life. I assume you dart in and out of the podcast amid busy schedules and family activities and jobs and hobbies and such. If you're part of a greenhouse, you do spend a fair amount of time with your group, but I assume you still have lots of other obligations. So as we enter into this brand new season, I'm going to set the stage. This first episode of season four is a launching point to get us ready for a pretty deep and very out-of-the-box dive into the kingdom. So in season one, we set up the problem. The Christianity consistently and prominently teaches that we are to be disciples and we're to make more. Modern Christianity struggles to do so. This problem is widely accepted and acknowledged in the church, regardless of denomination or tradition. It's been called the Great Omission. The evidence of this lack of genuine disciples-making in the West can be seen all over culture and, frankly, throughout the church. We have yet to explore the impact of the great omission on creation in the seven mountains of culture. We'll begin to look at that this season. It's an eye-opening and disconcerting discussion. We have explored the impact of a lack of disciple-making on an individual level, on the human heart. Because of our struggle to make genuine disciples, we often feel a sense of disconnection. This often unspoken but deeply felt sense that there must be more to a life in Christ than what we're experiencing. We're doing church, we're hosting Bible studies and attending community groups, but the promises of the Bible and the characteristics of a deep disciple don't seem to match my actual life. In quiet times of reflection, we get the sense we're missing something. Now this disconnection sometimes shows up in various places, including our behavior. Many years ago, Jessica and I were involved in a new church plant in our area, and we served there for about 10 years. Recently, I was sitting down with a close friend who was also part of that same plant, and we were reminiscing about some wonderful people we had met and engaged with over that decade. But the conversation turned a little bit somber when we began realizing the number of affairs, divorces, betrayals, relationship fractures, backbiting, and overall nonsense that had occurred in a relatively small church in a denomination that prides itself on doctrinal accuracy. Though certainly not true for everyone, for all of its attention on orthodoxy, the church seemed to have struggled to produce a lot of people who were actually being formed by its doctrine. I've made this point a few times. I'm not arguing against biblical doctrine. I'm arguing that solid biblical doctrine as a set of intellectual statements may be formative and it may not. The question of spiritual formation goes deeper than a set of agreed-upon theological statements. Case in point, we recalled a man in that church who, years ago, had specifically looked for a wife who held to that church's doctrines. In fact, he had refused to consider any woman who wasn't part of his theological persuasion. At least that was the story he told. A few years later, it was revealed he was having a long-term affair with another woman, with whom he eventually left his wife and children for. I wondered if the other woman also held to his required theological persuasion. My friend told me another story of a person who found out his pastor was having an affair, and this person wasn't sure what to do. A well-meaning member of the same congregation revealed that 
three of the six pastors in her life had been caught in affairs. In an attempt to be reassuring, she said, just keep your eyes on Jesus. It's him we're looking to, not the pastor. And now we're getting to at least one of the roots of the great omission. It's the modern, somewhat Western conclusion that sin is sin, or that we're all sinners and we all make mistakes. Of course, that's true, but we perpetually fail to finish the thought. We now assume we're going to sin as is, and we expect our leaders to continue to sin with no real expectations for anyone to grow to sin less, or more positively stated, to love Jesus or anyone else more. It sounds great on the surface to just look at Jesus when we or those around us fail in some sort of tragic sin, but it's pretty hard to reconcile this popular incomplete idea with Paul's instructions to the Philippians. Quote, Let us, therefore, as many as are mature, have this attitude. And if anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. End quote. If we're truly becoming more like Jesus as we're being formed, then should we not have the confidence of Paul to invite others to follow us as earthly human examples of Jesus, whether we're a professional Christian or not? I'm pretty sure that's the point. It sounds good to encourage people to just look at Jesus, but it also provides us a ready excuse to ignore our journey to become more like him. We seem to be incredibly eager to give up on this journey of sanctification and accept our sinfulness as a matter of unimprovable fact. But this unconscious and dangerous idea flies in the face of the purpose of discipleship. How many of us show up to church with the expectation of leaving the service a little bit more like Jesus, not simply knowing more about him, but being more like him? How many of our churches have that expectation? Oh, they may expect us to adopt their belief statements, but if those belief statements have no impact on our hearts, what's the point? We'll just keep on having affairs on our theologically correct wives. There are a host of other reasons for the great omission, lack of church attendance, Western prosperity, a lack of doctrinal consistency, innumerable entertainment distractions, not enough focus on the Holy Spirit, too much focus on the Holy Spirit, spiritual warfare, erosion of biblical orthodoxy, being known for what we're against versus what we're for, too much intellectualism, too much emotionalism, a perceived rapid declining cultural morality, a lack of clarity on what the word discipleship even means, and the list goes on. So in an effort to begin to chip away at all this, in season one we settle on a simple definition of discipleship. A disciple is an apprentice of Jesus for the purpose of becoming more like him. It's a lifelong journey of formation, character formation, heart formation, or what is now commonly referred to as spiritual formation. It's an intentional, cooperative, formative journey to do the things Jesus did. To love like he loves, to relate like he relates, to give like he gives, to desire the things he desires. I recently heard it described another way, living as if Jesus was living my life. Ouch. Alright, so far so good. However, early on in season one, things got a little weird. We concluded that this journey of formation is not simply gathering information or adopting the right set of beliefs or even doing the commonly accepted Christian rituals. It's the progressive transformation of often unconscious yet extremely powerful assumptions and conclusions that sit at the bedrock of our hearts, and we call those ideas. 
that's not weird enough, we added this postscript. Ideas aren't so much intellectual conclusions as they are experienced realities. In a culture that has been somewhat obsessed with rationalism for the last few hundred years, that sentence makes us squirm a bit in our seats. Soil and roots. Our roots are our hearts, and the soil is the systems of ideas in which we are rooted. Our hearts do embrace some ideas because of rational, reasonable instruction or persuasion, but there are numerous other factors in play. When and where we're born. The ethos of our family of origin. Influences from other key relationships. Media, nature, joys and celebrations, abuse, trauma, divine intervention. Ideas seep into our soil from all sorts of places, though primarily through relationships. I love apologetics and Plenty of people have been argued into the kingdom, there's no question. But when apologetics fail, it's probably time to start talking about story and the relationships that formed us. These ideas govern us, and they don't always align with our intellectual beliefs. In fact, many times, they don't. So the rest of season one explores this admittedly unique way of looking at human nature and discipleship and concludes that our hearts become more like Jesus by experiencing Jesus. And as that happens, these ideas are progressively changed from darkness to light. If our unconscious ideas bend towards light through experiencing Jesus, an obvious question arises. How do we experience Jesus? If we grew up in church, we know all of the stock answers. We read the Bible and attend a weekend service, do devotions, go on mission trips, join a community group. Those are all good. But if we also agree that we are living in a culture defined by the great omission that we aren't being formed into this journey of deep discipleship, we may want to take a good look at these answers to see what we might be missing. Once we explore the journey of discipleship as this progressive transformation of ideas, we're faced with a dilemma. If I am governed by these ideas, can I even determine what they are? Do I have the capacity to unearth, to uncover the ideas and desires that form me? This is the subject of season two. Doesn't Jeremiah tell us our hearts are desperately sick? Who can understand them? If my journey with Jesus means I should know him well, but I also need to be growing in my understanding of my own heart and my own story, is it even possible to do that? Well, the good news is yes. At least to some extent, we can uncover the ideas and desires that sit on the bedrock of our hearts. In fact, Scripture is littered with invitations to do just that. Our hearts bubble up their ideas whether we want them to or not. God has graciously wired us with eight indicators, eight signposts that point back down to our hearts. If we're courageously curious, if we invite God and a trusted friend to help us explore our indicators, we get a pretty good picture of what's going on beneath the surface. Many people won't explore their indicators, but those who do typically take leaps forward in their discipleship journey. Our eight indicators are our thought patterns, emotions, behaviors, our health, relationships, words, and how we use time and money. So season two walks us through the eight indicators and how we explore them in order to uncover the ideas in our hearts. Now here at Soil and Roots, we call this process heart view. So once we define discipleship as the progressive transformation of our ideas, and once we explored how we determine our ideas and desires, we then ask the question, what sort of environment is most helpful for this spiritual formation. Voila, season three. We discovered that human beings are best formed when we experience five key elements. 
These elements are common to any human formative experience, and they're the elements that Jesus and his early followers modeled. Time, habit, community, intimacy, and instruction. But unfortunately, most of us don't have the access to these types of specific groups. We live in a gap. So, recognizing and honoring the pace of Western life and our institutional churches and our Bible studies and community groups, Southern Roots developed something a bit different. The Greenhouse, an immersive, five-element community specifically designed for the progressive transformation of ideas in our hearts. And it works. When we gather together consistently for the purpose of becoming more like Jesus and we employ certain rhythms and practices that recognize our particular time in history, we do, in fact, begin to experience the deep end of discipleship. We reconnect, and we begin to experience the more that we've been missing. We sense we're being spiritually formed. It's a lifelong journey, but it is one best taken together. You may or may not be aware of it, but there's actually a spiritual formation movement here in the West, and it's growing. It's only been around for 40 years or so, but it's becoming an important piece of the kingdom puzzle. If you haven't heard of it, don't be surprised. I'm not sure they're trying to be known. I wasn't aware it existed when I started the podcast, but since then I've reached out to a number of pastors and leaders in order to better understand what the movement is and why it's so important. I discovered there are some common characteristics of the people who are in some way or other a part of it. They tend to be kind. They aren't particularly hurried. They focus more on listening than talking. And though they're part of a movement, they don't seem to be particularly interested in building a platform or social influence or even institutional growth. I'm not always sure how to relate to them. I was on a Zoom call a few weeks ago with a woman in the spiritual formation movement. She kindly asked if she could pray for us before we started our meeting, so I dutifully bowed my head and I waited. Five seconds went by. Ten seconds went by. I wondered if I had misheard her and that she wanted me to pray. Fifteen seconds went by. 20 seconds went by. I finally looked up at the screen wondering if we had gotten disconnected or if she had fallen asleep. After about 30 seconds, she started to pray softly, and I realized she had quite naturally taken the time to quiet herself and slow down and contemplate how she wanted to approach the throne of grace. I was a bit embarrassed, not for her, but for me. I never take time to quiet myself in preparation for talking with God. I normally just start blurting out whatever comes to mind. There are several groups that offer classes and retreats and longer-term courses and cohorts that focus on spiritual formation. They practice some of the things we explore in greenhouses, such as silence, and solitude, and confession. Some seminaries now actually offer advanced degrees in spiritual formation. Doctrine is very important, but I don't get the sense that they get too riled up about it. It seems they assume that if we're intentional about becoming more like Jesus, doctrine will sort itself out in time. Many of us who grew up in typical Protestant churches may not be sure what to do with this growing effort. It doesn't look much like our modern Christian structures or apologetics or church growth movements or programs. My sense is the spiritual formation movement endorses and supports those things, but that isn't really their focus. Their focus is to slow down, to listen to God, to practice some ancient rhythms we've forgotten and slowly grow together to become more like Jesus. So where does the forgotten kingdom fall in all of this? Some of the pioneers of the movement, like Richard Foster or Dallas Willard, certainly wrote and taught about the kingdom, though the reason Southern Roots emphasizes it so much is because the kingdom largely remains forgotten, but it's central to this slow, patient journey of heart formation. Why is it central? Why is the forgotten kingdom the first primary problem, and why are we dedicating an entire season to it? 
Why do greenhouses immerse themselves in it? Because if the reason for our discipleship journey is to be formed more like Jesus, that doesn't just include his characteristics, such as the fruits of the Spirit and wisdom and sacrifice. It also includes his purpose. Why did he come? What exactly is he accomplishing? There's an overarching context here that's essential. We certainly want to grow to do the things he did, though we want to do that in the context of his purpose, his mission. If we don't understand his purpose, we're going to struggle to become more like him. It's a bit funny that I keep using Michael Jordan as a reference point, considering I don't like or even watch basketball, but I assume most of you know who he is. If you wanted to become more like Michael Jordan, you probably studied his characteristics, his work ethic, his discipline, his willingness to take correction and be coached. Perhaps you admired the way he treated his fans or got along with his teammates. But chances are you wanted to assume more of his characteristics because you saw them as necessary, integral, and central to his driving purpose to win NBA championships. We don't normally want to become more like someone who doesn't have a clear vision and purpose. You may be related to the proverbial crazy uncle who's a nice guy but can't hold the job and wastes his money and only shows up when there's free food. Chances are he's not someone you want to be formed more like. You may appreciate some of his characteristics, but you're not all that keen on his purpose. We tend to want to emulate people who have an extraordinary focus and vision. This doesn't mean it's always a sports phenom or a rock star. We sometimes want to emulate people who change or form culture and who display inspiring selflessness, people like Mother Teresa or William Wilberforce. If we want to become more like Jesus, it's essential that we understand his overarching mission. Is his mission simply to save souls and take us all to a disconnected heaven one day? Or is his mission bigger, more comprehensive than that? What's going to make season four most likely different from other studies or experiences you might have had regarding the kingdom is the way we're framing our exploration. Because Soil and Roots is primarily concerned with the progressive transformation of ideas, we're going to explore the kingdom through the lens of a cosmic conflict of ideas. Ideas sit at the bedrock of our hearts. Though we haven't explored it yet, they also sit at the bedrock of much larger movements. We've been looking at ideas as they pertain to our individual formation, but individual formation inevitably leads to bigger and bigger formations, those of marriages and families, communities, cultures, and even entire nations. So we're going to explore the kingdom of light through the lens of its ideas and the ideas of its defeated enemy, the kingdom of darkness. Now, if you've been listening or reading really carefully through the last three seasons, you'll discover I've been dropping hints and little breadcrumbs about the kingdom as an invasion of life-giving ideas into a world that had become overrun with ideas of destruction. And the first hint dropped all the way back in episode one. Dallas Willard discussed ideas in his book, Renovation of the Heart, and he made an interesting claim about idea systems. I just sort of mentioned it in episode one, but I'll share his larger quote here as it provides some context for this entire season. Quote, Now, Christian spiritual formation is inescapably a matter of recognizing in ourselves the idea systems of evil that governs the present age and the respective cultures that constitute life away from God. The needed transformation is very largely a matter of replacing in ourselves those idea systems of evil and their corresponding cultures with the idea system that Jesus Christ embodied and taught and with a culture of the kingdom of God. This is truly a passage from darkness to light. 
The Apostle Paul, who of course understood and taught about these things, warned us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. These high-level powers and forces are spiritual agencies that work with, constantly try to implement and support, the idea systems of evil. These systems are their main tool for dominating humanity. That by contrast, we who have been rescued from the power of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved Son are to let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is an essential way of describing the substance, the underlying reality of Christian spiritual formation. End quote. Okay, there's a lot here, and we're not going to pick it all apart in the first episode of the season. So let's just finish this introduction to season four by summarizing where we're headed. Ideas sit at the bedrock of our hearts. They're largely unconscious assumptions and principles that aren't so much intellectual conclusions as they are experienced realities. Though some of our ideas are formed through instruction, many of them are formed through experience, through relationships. We aren't brains on sticks. Now, if we accept that Willard is correct, then the kingdom of darkness primarily functions in this realm of ideas, that they work through elite philosophers and thinkers and powerful cultural institutions to basically crop dust entire people groups with assumptions that seep into individual soils, hearts. These ideas are designed to destroy, disintegrate, disconnect, disrupt, and ultimately are designed to lead to our deaths, spiritually, emotionally, physically. Remember, there are no original ideas of darkness. Every dark idea is a distortion of an idea of light. We can then begin to frame the inception of the kingdom of light as the invasion, the inbreaking of the set of original ideas from Eden, now coming back to reclaim and restore what the kingdom of darkness had distorted all the way back in the garden. You may remember back in episode two that the kingdom of darkness was born because Adam and Eve embraced an idea of darkness in their hearts, in their soils, soil and roots. When Adam and Eve took this idea into their soils, what did they experience? Disintegration, distortion, and even death. So what sort of ideas did Jesus bring with him when he incepted his kingdom? What sort of themes do we find in his ideas? Repentance, rebirth, reintegration, redemption, restoration, reconnection, resurrection? When we begin to frame this conflict between the two kingdoms as a cosmic battle between original good ideas with distorted deadly ideas, we begin to grasp the vast revolution that Jesus is leading. He is reversing the curse. Just as darkness was born because of a dark idea embraced by the first couple, so we are reborn, recreated, restored when we embrace his ideas of light. Just as the curse was cosmic in that it distorts all four of our relationships with God, others, self, and creation, so the cure restores all four relationships. Just to put a cherry on top, we'll explore that Jesus didn't simply teach and exemplify ideas of light. He is ideas of light. We'll let that one bake in our ovens for a while. It's going to be a crazy ride and a ton of fun. So here are some of the areas we're going to dig into this season. What is the kingdom? What do we mean by an inbreaking, an invasion of original ideas? When is the kingdom? Well, that question has been hotly contested in the West over the past several decades, and so we're going to gently step into the fray. Where is the kingdom headed? 
With great fear and trepidation, we're going to explore some popular views about where the kingdom and the world are headed prior to the end of this age. Talk about a powder keg. But frankly, it's difficult to understand the kingdom without at least exploring various views about the end times. Look, we've touched on ideas of expectation. Our heart's ideas about where we're heading in the future impact our eight indicators right now. In many ways, we relate to the world around us according to what we expect. There is a vast difference between expecting rescue and relief, but not expecting restoration and renewal. And I'll promise you, no one is going to be happy with that set of episodes. Next, what is our role in the kingdom? If Jesus is confronting and defeating ideas of darkness with his ideas of light, starting in the human heart, what is our place in his mission? And lastly, how do we live in the kingdom? The kingdom of light is often described as upside down. Jesus' kingdom generally doesn't work the way that we think it should. His ideas are certainly countercultural and in some ways counterintuitive. This entire season will help us get a clearer picture of Jesus himself. Jesus and the kingdom are intimately woven together, so the more we embrace his kingdom, the more we become more like him. This kingdom is a really, really big deal. And if we're ready to journey into deep discipleship, it's vital that we not only embrace Jesus' mind-blowing characteristics, but also his really, really big purpose. Hey, thanks for joining us. For more information, check us out at soilandroots.org. If you have any complaints or hard questions, email kyle at soilandroots.org. Otherwise, you can reach us at fish at soilandroots.org. And we'll see you next time.